Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Dr. Brown from Meridian Healthcare in Youngstown, Ohio. Dr. Brown, welcome. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for having us in today. Thank you for being here. Dr. Brown is a DO and Chief Medical Officer for Meridian Healthcare, a community-based integrated care agency with a goal of serving individuals and families struggling with addiction. Dr. Brown, could you tell us just a little bit about the treatment options that you offer? Um, at Meridian Healthcare, we have um, many different treatment options uh, from your typical intensive outpatient programs. We offer residential programs. Uh, we have a co-occurring treatment program for patients who have dual diagnosis, both mental health and addiction uh, issues. And then within all of those programs, we offer patients medication-assisted treatment if it's, a, uh, if it, if it's something that's right for them. So we have, we have a residential program with 12-step and MAT all going on at the same time. I think that's pretty much unheard of. So, Dr. Brown, what makes Meridian Healthcare superior to other programs, in your opinion, for treatment of opioid addiction? We, um, I think that you know, there are a handful of other programs that we work with in the state that um, do, do a superior job. But I think we're unique in certain aspects in its what we do around medication-assisted treatment, not just the medication-assisted treatment itself. Um, The medication, obviously, many physicians can prescribe it. Um, You know, it's fairly fairly simple from a medical standpoint, but what do you wrap around that patient? And and I think we're unique in what we offer with the residential programs that accept medication-assisted treatment uh, patients, with our co-occurring treatment program, uh, with the task program that we have, with our, uh, our counselors that we have in our medication-assisted treatment, uh, both doing individuals and in the group counseling, um, but also looking at we, we have vocational services, we have housing programs for special populations, including veterans. Um, we um, just, in a lot of ways, wrap other services around the patient to make sure that they have the best potential outcome. So you try and um, address the entire continuum of care, it sounds like. Is absolutely. that right? I don't want to put words no, in No, that's, that's absolutely. Uh, you know, even on the medical side, we have primary care. Uh, we have psychiatry services. We have 
Um, we have an infectious disease specialist who comes here and sees our patients for hepatitis C, so we run a hepatitis C clinic. So we really try to look at the patient with addiction and say, what's what do they need um, in the community? How can we can provide it or link them to someone in the community to provide that? So we're trying to get that fully integrated approach. Hmm. Um, with all of the services that you provide, one of the things that pops into my head is affordability. How's that happen? How's how's insurance work, or how's how, how do you make that affordable for your patients? Um, more and more, we're seeing some of the private insurance companies are are paying for uh, medication-assisted treatment and for and treatment itself. Um, but we've always had uh, good coverage with uh, Medicaid, um, and I think it's the important thing is that you know looking at treatment facilities, looking at ones that accept insurance. Um, that go out and get paneled on the insurance um, is something that separates, uh, I think, a facility like ours from a lot of agencies, unfortunately, that are charging cash and, and uh, not accepting insurance. So for our listeners, what's getting paneled on insurance? Um, I don't think most of them would oh, know. Well, so, I don't know. Yeah. So yeah. If, you, if you're a facility that, that does what we do, um, you have to be accredited by either JCO or CAR for one of the accreditation bodies. Um, and then you can apply to the insurance panels. Um, you know, your physicians have to be um, usually board certified. Um, and when you send all that information in, you know, the, the insurance will accept you and say that you can take their patients and you can bill for their, their, your services to the insurance company. Okay. So let's make this simple as far as insurances are concerned and, and most of your patients. Uh, do most insurance companies, uh, you know, do you accept uh, do you have a relationship with most insurance companies right now? Right now, say? we do. We do. And I, part of that comes from having all of the services that we have, primary care, uh, the hepatitis C clinic, the psychiatry services. So in order to provide any of those services, you have to be able to accept people's insurance. So. Okay. Now I want to really uh, kind of home in on some of the benefits of MAT, medication-assisted treatment. And really, your area of uh, real expertise, your, your reputation, is because you're doing great things. So can you describe what the options are? Um, for medication-assisted treatment, the options, you know, when someone comes in here, depending on how long they've been using, what other things they've tried, um, our assessment department's going to kind of direct them several different ways. They may say they haven't tried uh, detox, they've never... Um, They've never been or, or maybe never been in a program where like a residential program. So a lot of times medication assisted treatment isn't the first option. Um, we really try to reserve it for people who have what we consider chronic relapsing opiate addiction, who um, have tried other treatment alternatives and failed. Um, so then we look at the different medications. So we have three medications that we use um, and probably the one we're using the most right now are the buprenorphine based products. You may be familiar with something called Suboxone. Um, that we're using almost first line. Um, Vivitrol is another option, but we have a little more difficulty getting patients who just come in off the street. Um, uh, you have to go through a detox to take Vivitrol. Um, and if we have trouble getting somebody into a bed locally, or um, it can be difficult for us to, to get them on the medication. Um, we do see a, 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 a role for Vivitrol. Um, we use it oftentimes in association with the court treatment programs where patients have usually detoxed you know, through incarceration and on release, they're released directly to us and we can give them the medication, the injection, um, or and if they're in a residential program. For our listeners, could you explain the difference between the two? 
Vivitrol yeah. being the injection? And yes. So Vivitrol is a blocking agent. It, it's, um, it's not an opiate in any way. It doesn't replace the opiate. It actually goes in, attaches itself to the opiate receptors in the brain, and completely blocks them. And it's supposed to block them for about 30 days. Um, we do see some cases where it wears off a little bit early. Um, so if they go out and use during those 30 days, there's then generally there's no, no effect? There's generally no effect. Um, you know, so it, it is, in theory, it's a great medication. When you look at it, it has no withdrawal effect. Um, it's not reinforcing in any way as far as being an opiate. Um, and, and it blocks the, the effects of heroin. Um, the, the one downside that we see with the medication, though, is that oftentimes patients who are on Vivitrol, unless they're in some type of program where they're court-ordered or they're highly motivated with a very good family structure, um, they often drop out of treatments more than we would see with the other medications. Um, and uh, so we have to be selective. You have to, I mean, there, we have a lot of different tools that we have. We have to make sure that we're choosing the right tool for the right patient. Okay. So for our listeners, what should they look out for and look at when selecting a treatment provider? Um, a treatment provider being a physician, if you're looking for um, a physician or I, I guess and we're now hearing that uh, I believe uh, other extended providers, uh, nurse practitioners going to be able to prescribe MAT, um, you should look for somebody who has um, possibly board certification if, if that's possible in your area. Not everybody has that. We have three physicians here who are board certified, but I know a lot of communities in Ohio, there's there, there aren't any available. Um, you want to look for somebody who is... Um, Obviously, accepting insurance. Um, to me, I think that's one of the signs that someone's doing this the right way is that they're paneled with an insurance company and that they're, they're accredited. Um, you want to make sure that they're offering counseling associated with their uh, treatment, um, with the medication-assisted treatment. Um, and uh, I think the other issue would be you want to look at um, their reputation in the community, not just um, with other medical providers, but even in the recovery community. Um, you know, to ask questions of, of others and find out the, the reputation of that provider. Okay. Um, so now I want to get back and uh, go back to Medicaid-assisted uh, treatment once again and, and dig just a little bit deeper. Um, so you put somebody on medication, and on average, how long do they typically stay on that? The current recommendations, uh, based on the uh, available evidence, are that you should treat people for at least 18 to 24 months. So once you've identified that somebody is a chronic relapsing opiate addict, that they've tried other treatment and they've failed, and you need to support them with medication-assisted treatment, um, you should do it for a minimum of 18 to 24 months. Um, and the reason behind that um, is something we, we call recovery capital. We're looking for that person to um, repair things in their lives, uh, to, I guess is one way to say it. Um, if you take someone and you just um, remove their, their cravings and their withdrawal, but you stick them back into the same environment and take the medication away, you know, we find that relapse rates are still pretty high. So we want to get that person to the point where they have momentum built up, like they, fi they fixed issues possibly with their family, vocationally, maybe academically, um, you know, addressed a lot of the issues that were the result of their addiction uh, so that when we take them away, we, we hope they can sustain recovery. 
So right now, out in the treatment community, there's a big debate in terms of the abstinence folks and that camp versus medication-assisted treatment. Um, can you weigh in on that, on why there's such a debate on that? Um, you know, I, why, why there's a debate, I guess there are, there are people who feel that medication-assisted treatment is replacing one addiction with another. We, we oftentimes hear that. Um, and, and I think the important thing is to remember that you know, our goal is abstinence for everyone, but it's abstinence after we've stabilized the patient. Um, and our goal is also to keep these patients alive through that process, which we know that with medication-assisted treatment, um, we, we substantially reduce the risk of overdose and, and, and reduce, reduce the risk of death. Um, so I, I think people try to make them opposing figures. You say you're either abstinence or you're all MAT. Um, I think we have to look at every patient on an individual basis and say, what do they need? What's best for them? Um, and um, try to achieve that goal. So medication assisted treatment, we've, you know, through the years, they've done a lot of research, a lot of evidence um, surrounding when someone is um, using versus when they come into a medication assisted treatment program, you're placed on medication um, in that stabilization process. So. Uh, a lot of things people don't think about are the, the decreased risk of hepatitis C transmission or HIV transmission. Um, our patients who are using on the street, um, unfortunately, are very high risk for being victims of violent crime, being, being arrested for crime. Um, and once they're in treatment and they're on medication, we see that return to normal. Um, for our pregnant patients who come in who are using, um, once you put them on a medication to stabilize them, um, the, the risk of the baby being born prematurely drops. The risk of the baby being born with low birth weight um, drops. Um, also, just some other complications associated with it, we see a reduction. Um, we, it improves the retention and treatment. So patients who are on medication-assisted treatment stay in treatment longer. Um, and, but the most, probably the biggest thing that we, when we look at is uh, medication-assisted treatment is the reduction in overall death. Um, so our patients, we, you know, they're at risk for death for many reasons, overdose being one, infectious disease, violent crime. But when you look at all, all told, you're uh, looking at a 15-fold reduction in mortality. So, and that's, that's a SAMHSA statistic that um, is associated with 30 days into a treatment program uh, with medication-assisted treatment. So think about what we do in our country to reduce mortality um, we use blood pressure medications, cholesterol medications, all we spend billions of dollars on these things. And generally we see reductions of 20, 30% um, in, in mortality, uh, car cardiovascular events, uh, I should say, uh, associated with those treatments. This is not 20 to 30%. This is not 15%. This is 15 times. This is, you're, you're talking about would be 1500% reduction in mortality at 30 days. Um, so there's probably nothing else that we do in medicine where we reduce someone's likelihood of dying in such a short period of time. Wow. That is just a huge endorsement for uh, medication-assisted uh, treatment. And, and certainly, um, I, I, I think the argument from the, um, those that believe in abstinence, they need to sit down and talk with you because they, uh, you could turn on some lights. So 
Speaking of mortality a little bit, fentanyl and now carfentanyl have, have really just uh, increased your mortality rates out there. Um, any observations from uh, your perspective? Uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult for us to get a grasp on it in the community because it's hard for us to test for it in, in the drug screens that we're... It's a very um, kind of a new development in the last few years. And so uh, the technology to test for fentanyl um, quickly in, in an office screen is just not there yet. Um, so we don't really know how much of it's in the community, but we do, when it is in the community, we do see those spikes and overdose deaths. Fentanyl is you know, anywhere from 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin itself. Um, and so even small amounts of it um, in heroin uh, can lead to, to an overdose and death. And what we're seeing is that patients who are overdosing with, with fentanyl are taking much more naloxone to reverse them. So using, um, they may have a Narcan kit with one or two doses, um, but it may take three or four doses to reverse it. So there's many components, as you outlined a little bit earlier, that make up a comprehensive treatment program. And for many, a very important component is 12-step. And we've got a bit of a contradiction, though. Mm -hmm. Many 12-step programs will not allow you in their meetings unless you're completely drug-free, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you get around? How does that work for them to put together an entire program? You've got that contradiction going there again. Yeah, that's, it's difficult. And it's difficult for some of our patients. Um, uh, we've had patients who don't tell people that they're on medication-assisted treatment, and then when a sponsor finds out, they, they drop them as uh, they won't be their sponsor anymore, So, um, it, which oftentimes can, can be a big... Backfire. Yeah. yeah. So, Take a step back, right? Right. So, but we do, believe, we, we do believe in the 12-step process, and so um, we encourage our patients to attend meetings. In fact, we require them to attend meetings, um, but we also help them and facilitate finding uh, meetings where they're welcome. Uh, we host meetings here on site, um, and uh, I, I think it's. I don't think that the two sides are should be mutually exclusive. You shouldn't. Uh, you shouldn't if you have MAT not be able to participate in, in what the twelve step programs can offer. Be nice to get that changed out there somehow. <laughs> it would be nice to ha to have that changed. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's get into some of the other medications. We talked a little bit about Vivitrol. Let's go to Suboxone and talk a little bit about the pros and cons of using Suboxone. Um, you know, Suboxone's been around uh, for quite a while now. We've had it for over a decade that we've been using it here. Um, and what we see with Suboxone, I'll, I'll talk about the pros of it first. Mm -hmm. um, it's designed to be released to the patient that they can take it home and dose it at home. So they... Um, the idea that there's a little more privacy associated with you can go to your primary care doctor, they can be licensed to dispense the medication. Um, that was the initial intent of it. Um, and because it's a what's called a partial agonist, so comparing, we talked about Vivitrol going to the receptor in the brain, attaching to the receptor and blocking it. Suboxone does it a little bit differently. It's a partial opiate agonist, so it, it kind of works half as an opiate. Um, it pushes that receptor, it uh, blocks the receptor, but it relieves withdrawal, it relieves cravings, um, and in its essence works like an opiate, 
But because of that function, it doesn't build tolerance. So I can put somebody on one dose of the medication, and once they're stabilized, I know usually, even if they're on it for 18 to 24 months or longer, um, we don't have to keep escalating the dose. They're not going to build up tolerance. Um, and at higher doses, it attaches so firmly to those receptors, it has something called a high affinity for the receptor, that even if someone were to use, it acts like a blockade. Because if it's on the receptor, heroin can't attach. Uh, other drugs cannot attach to the receptor. Um, so that's another pro of it. Um, I would say, you know, the cons right now of buprenorphine kind of come from the same things that we talked about. The way it was designed to be released, um, you know, a as a in a setting outside of a treatment facility. Doctors can prescribe it outside of it. So we have a lot of physicians who are, I think, trying to cash in on this. We see a lot of cash clinics for it. Uh, and from that, we see them getting too much medication. We're seeing it diverted to the street um, in those cases. And then now we're having, it's starting to get stigmatized. Um, you know, in law enforcement, they're, they're seeing a lot of medication being diverted. Um, so I think that's one of the issues. I mean, the other downside of it is cost. It's much more expensive to use that medication uh, than it is like a methadone uh, treatment. Um, so that would be the, the, the downside of buprenorphine. Um, as far as patients being able to come off of it, um, it's easier for patients to come off of buprenorphine than it is for them to come off of a full opiate, uh, such as methadone. Um, but there is still a withdrawal process there. They still have to be weaned down off of the medication. And then when they stop, they're going to go through a, a bit of withdrawal um, before they're, before it's all done. It's the only medication that, in, that people ask us, when are we going to take the person off, even if there's no risk? Like you had asked earlier, if someone's on it for six years, is there a downside to it? Well, you know, we can't say with methadone. Um, we do know that they can build tolerance. Um, there's some side effects. Um, but with buprenorphine, when we talked about there's no buildup of, of tolerance, they can take it um, on a daily basis. There's no euphoric effect from it. Um, patients can look and act normal, there's no real benefit to us that we see of taking the medication away. And so we get to a, a point where even at 18 to 24 months, if we're, if we're talking to a patient and the patient's not ready to come off for whatever reason, um, if we force them to come off, we know we're going to increase their risk of relapse and therefore potentially increase their risk, their risk of mortality. And so where else in medicine do we take a medication that's working and take it away because we've decided you've had it long enough, even though there's no benefit other than potentially for cost um, being really the only benefit. Do so, you consult with them and ask them, hey, we could take you off right now, but of course, that's a risk factor. We, you know, we, we try to engage them very early in the process, talking about eventually coming off the medication. And, and really, it's our goal to, to, to prepare the person. So you know, that's what our counselors are here for. That's what, you know, that's what um, we're, our goal is for everyone. Um, but we reach that point sometimes where the patient just can't come off the medication. And we start to think, you know, is it ethical for me to remove it as a physician? And, that, and that's probably the biggest question is, is you know, am I ethically doing what's correct? if I take this medication away. And I think that's the thing that most addiction medicine physicians struggle with. If you're tapering down to like four milligrams or so, we'll let you off at that point. Um, which is what I was saying, like that mm -hmm. judgment of, mm -hmm. you know, the person who's taking less is somehow yeah. cleaner. Interesting. So now let's move along to methadone. Mm -hmm. Methadone has a bad rap. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know whether that's deserved or not, yeah. uh, but it definitely has a bad rap out there. So um, what do you have to say, again, pros and cons about methadone for treatment? So methadone's been around uh, as far as in treatment since the 60s. Since, uh, and really, Meridian has been providing that service since 1972. Um, and methadone works very well uh, to control cravings, to control symptoms of withdrawal, uh, and to stabilize patients. Um, I, I believe the stigma that's associated with it um, sometimes is because patients who are on the medications have a little harder time coming off it, oftentimes tend to stay on the medication longer. Um, but really, I, it, the stigma is not deserved. It, it, it's, it's an excellent medication. It really does work well. Um, and oftentimes, we use it for the patient who's failed Vivitrol, who's failed Suboxone, that patient who really is at highest the highest risk for overdose and, and um, that's the patient that we reserve that treatment it's our it's our last resort um, and when we use it we, we do see very good success with patients so. Hmm. Um, so it would seem as though your vivitrol would be it's interesting the the, the way that you the way that those fall into line there but um, Vivitrol wouldn't be obviously more effective than that in that particular case as a last resort, in other words. Correct. I mean, to the layman, right. it feels as though it totally blocks it. It so, totally, yeah. you would, right. But patients have a choice of whether or not to come back for that shot. Yeah. Um, and that's where, so we can get patients to get that initial injection. Um, and because there's no withdrawal from Vivitrol, um, sometimes we see patients get out to three, four weeks. They don't come back. They don't feel any different. They think, well, I'm okay. I don't need, I don't need to go back for that injection. The injection's expensive. It's painful. Um, and when they don't you know, come back, eventually um, they stop treatment um, and we see relapses. And unfortunately with that, uh, we know those patients have a little higher risk of when they relapse uh, of overdosing um, because their tolerance, you know, they've lost that tolerance. So. Um, while Vivitrol is a great medication, again, we talked about individualizing that treatment, um, making sure that you're using the right tool for the right patient. Okay. When uh, someone is using and they take that one step, they've, been, they've made it to heroin and now maybe they're snorting it and, um, and they've stopped there versus the next person that went that one step further and started shooting. Can you give me a sense for the, the recovery of both of them and the challenges that they faced? The first one that never shot mm -hmm. and the second one that shot. Um, we definitely see a difference in um, I don't know if it's the mentality of the patient um, once they've crossed that line uh, to using a needle. Um, and I'm not really sure what it is that causes that, but we do know that we have a much more difficult time um, taking someone who's using IV and having them uh, detox and, and, and remain clean and not relapse. Um, Can you quantify much more? Like, is it? Yeah. Um, it, depending on how long they've been using, you know, a needle, if they've been using six months to a year, um, those patients we, we oftentimes um, bypass. Uh, some of the, the lower medications or other treatments, and, and oftentimes we require at least buprenorphine or methadone. Um, and we know that they're going to stay on the medication for probably 18 to 24 months before we're going to try to taper them. So um, it's definitely a much, much, much more difficult uh, 
treatment at that phase. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about the families. Um, can you give uh, families out there of our listeners, give them a little bit of advice on how best to support their loved one in recovery? You know, I, I think the best way for someone to support their their loved one in their recovery is probably go out and seek counseling themselves. Um, in a lot of ways, helping themselves will, will help help their their loved one as well. Um, there's a lot of we everyone talks about that enabling you know the, the loved one versus um, the other side of the spectrum the the. I guess the the hard way of tough going love. about tough love, um, but really you know learning learning about addiction, learning about um, you know a, a techniques or approaches to uh, supporting your loved one without going to extremes. And I think really, um, if anything, that would be our our advice: is seek help yourself. Treatment programs. A lot of families feel as though, gosh, we get our loved one into a treatment program and we get them taken care of and it was just a blip on the radar screen and we move on. So can you comment on the the addicted one, their their life and the changes in their life? Addiction is a chronic disease. Even that person who has been clean and stabilized, um, you know, it's going to be a lifelong challenge for them. And so we hope that medication-assisted treatment, um, if we use it as just that blip on the radar of, of, of their extended lifelong recovery process. So it's a lifelong, it's a changed life, yes. lifelong process. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, any other thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners about the challenges that patients face in recovery? Yeah, I would say probably the biggest challenge our patients face in recovery is, is the stigma associated with recovery. Um, our patients who um, come here and seek treatment, often they're stigmatized for their addiction, but then during their treatment, especially if they're on medication, um, we see them get stigmatized again um, in their interactions, even in medical facilities who maybe don't understand the medication. Um, and uh, or if they're in the court systems, it, you know, we're pretty fortunate here in Mahoney County to have some very supportive um, um, court systems, the, the jail system. But I think in a lot of counties, they don't have that kind of support uh, with medication-assisted treatment patients. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a fight sometimes for that patient to um, accept their treatment um, because, you know, they hear different voices from different things. And so I think the important thing is, is that, um, you know, we... We need to make sure that our community, our whole community, understands medication-assisted treatment, um, and that um, that education that we educate um, uh, other agencies and other support services on what it is, why we're doing it, why it works, um, um, and so that our patients can feel comfortable, um, you know, outside of our agency. Okay, so let's talk about the success that you've had. Mm -hmm. And I understand you've had great success. Uh, I was told to come out here and talk with you by the CEO of another treatment facility over in Lorraine, mm -hmm. Tom Stuber. Um, so let's talk about how you measure success. Um, I think the, the way we measure success is we look at patients who, who come through here seeking help, seeking treatment. 
um, and look at where they are when they come in. Um, and, and our goal is to get them back to their community, back to, uh, to working, going back to school, uh, back to participating in their families. Um, and, and to us, that's the biggest measure of success is, is looking at those individual patients um, you know, and, and how well do they, how well they do in their lives, how well are they doing in their recovery. Um, you know, we obviously we, we keep stati- some statistics on, on um, patients, uh, how many stay in treatment, um, you know, if they're clean or not clean, uh, as far as their uh, their drug screens, um, those who successfully taper off the, the program and stay clean. Um, but really, the measure of success to us is that patient returning to their community. So you, you keep checking in with them to keep track of the stats even out once they're outside of your program and they've left and there's no tie back. We, tr- right? we try to, um, but you know, a lot of our patients, even after they're done with medication-assisted treatment, mm-hmm. they may stay you know, in counseling or in one of our programs in some way um, for an extended period of time. So we do oftentimes get to kind of follow them after, um, after uh, we're finished with certain programs. Terrific. Okay. Um, any final words for our listeners? I, I, I want to thank you for having us in today. Um, any last words before we conclude for our listeners out there? Um, well, really, thank you very much for being here. I, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to speak. It's been a pleasure. So we've been visiting today with Daniel Brown, the doctor and chief medical officer for Meridian Healthcare, a community-based integrated care agency with a goal of serving individuals and families struggling with addiction. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover Two Resources. Please join us again for another podcast. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.